This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma, and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns, and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen. Stuff Podcasts. Hi, it's Aaron Smale here. You probably thought you'd gotten rid of me. Not quite. When we finished making the lake in October 2021, we'd been waiting to hear from the police. They were finalising their third investigation into what happened at the Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital in the 1970s. That decision took six months longer than expected, but in December we finally heard. We'll start with the good news. Here's Mike Ferris from CCHR. It vindicates the effort put in to get it this far. Remember, that's the NGO set up by Scientologists, which has done a lot of work looking into abuses in psychiatric hospitals. They found sufficient evidence to charge three people, Lex is one of them, and there's two others. The police have enough evidence to charge three ex-staff members, including lead psychiatrist Dr Selwyn Lex. But... Lex and one of them have dementia, so they can't be formally charged. Dr Leakes will not actually be charged. Dr Leakes is 92. He's unwell, plus he has dementia. So the police have decided he's unfit to stand trial. But yet they can't charge him uh, because he's sick. We already heard about the state of Dr Leakes' health at the Royal Commission. It's why he wasn't able to give evidence himself. But the survivors are still gutted by the police decision. Doesn't matter. Just charge him anyway. Here's Tyrone. You know, if you're not going to do him, then you've got to charge someone. And this is how Rangi responded. Oh, what? Yeah. So that's been all for nothing, eh? Fuck. Fuck. I phoned Leone, who'd just heard from the police. So, run me through it. What did he tell you? They'd gone through over 48,000 documents. Should have been charged. 40 years ago. Overwhelming evidence to criminally charge Dr Leakes. But it can't happen. There were a number of ex-staff that also there was evidence for criminal charges, but they've died. There is another ex-staff member who's overseas in the same situation as Leaks dying in dementia. So he will neither be named or charged. And there is one who should be in court this week. That conversation with Leone is from December the 8th, shortly after police informed her about the charges. And since then, the person she mentioned has appeared in court, charged with willful ill-treatment of a child, and specifically relating to the use of peraldehyde injections as punishment. He pleaded not guilty. We can't name this person, though his name suppression will be lifted shortly. But he is somebody we've mentioned in the series in passing. He's going to wear it. He's going to be the face of it. It's clear that if the police had have done a thorough investigation earlier, when they had the chance, others would have been charged and put on trial. 
including Dr Leakes. He would be in jail now. He would be in jail. I would have won. As it stands, Dr Leakes will die with no criminal charges related to Lake Ellis on his record. So you have to ask, why haven't charges been laid before now? This is the third police investigation. Did they have enough evidence to lay charges all along, but chose to sit on it? Or has the evidence only come to light more recently? We now know of one piece of evidence, which police have in their possession now, which they didn't have in previous investigations. It's a report written by Emeritus Professor John Wery, who you might remember from earlier in the series. He's a psychiatrist and international authority on child and adolescent psychiatry. He was the one who told us that under the Mental Health Act at the time, doctors could not be prosecuted if they claimed to have practised in good faith and with reasonable care. Can you believe it? I could chop off your head and as long as I had a good reason for it, I can't be prosecuted. So back in 1995, Dr Weary wrote a report on Leone's experience for an ACC claim that she filed about health issues related to her time at Lake Alice. In the report, Weary says that what Leone went through constitutes, quote, medical error and medical misadventure. Now remember, one thing the police have struggled with historically is whether what happened at Lake Alice was valid psychiatric treatment or not. This document clearly states that it was not. But the police never saw it. They could have, because Crown Law had the document, which Leone had presented to them during her litigation. But for whatever reason, Crown Law didn't hand it over to the police. The first time the police saw it was when Leone passed it on to them in August 2020. I thought oh, I'd done being as angry as I could be at the Crown, and I'm wrong. I've discovered a whole new level of angry. You know, they knew all of that. At the end of the day, for me, I know if he had been standing in court under those charges, he would have been found guilty. So in my mind, that's guilty. I said, what happens to this now then? The charges, like, what does something go against us now? And like, what, what, what? Does it just dis- dissipate, disappear? And he said, yeah. Pretty much. Nothing, he can't be charged, convicted of anything. So it can't go against his name as such, like there's no note. (laughs) But I'd like to know what the charges would have been. Okay, I don't want to bog you down with documents, but there's two more I want to highlight. Now this next bit relates to something that came up in episode four, which is the one we said you should skip if you didn't feel up to listening to it. If you're not sure you want to get into it now, you might want to skip ahead a minute or two. This one relates to Rangi. He would have been about 10 or 11 at the time, when he came to after a shock session that had knocked him out. He'd been left in Villa 8, which is where the most dangerous and aggressive adult patients were housed, outside of maximum security. Rangi was in a lot of pain, and another patient told him what had happened. He said, oh, after the shock treatment day, Stripped you on the bed and all the fucking patients raped you. There was about eight of them. Rangi told us that a senior staff member came to see him soon after this. He goes, I've come to check your stitches. Goes, yeah, I stitched you up last night. And because you've been sodomised and split open. 
he knew everything about my injuries. He told me to my face that he stitched me up. Rangi knows what happened to him, but it's not on his file. He's never seen any document that might corroborate his experience. But remember that little garage on the North Shore, the one full of documents collected by CCHR, the Scientologists. Recently, I found among those documents something I hadn't seen before. It's a letter written in 1978 by an educational psychologist named Ian Tennant to district psychologist David Page. Tennant was writing to Page to make him aware of a couple of specific incidents that had happened at Lake Ellis which concerned him. But he also highlighted a third concern, saying, As you are well aware, the boys who have been placed in Villa 8 are almost automatically faced with homosexual advances from the male patients. He goes on to say that because the boys are so young, they are unable to resist these advances. What this letter proves, beyond a doubt, is that people in charge knew boys like Rangi were being raped by adult patients in Villa 8, and they failed to act. He's questioning him. The superintendent of Lake Ellis, Sidney Pugmire, he knew. The chief psychologist for the Department of Education, Don Brown, he knew. And the head of mental health, Stanley Myrams, he also knew. All these high-ranking people knew. These aren't just lowly workers. These are bosses, they knew. Towards the end of the letter, Tennant says, Are we, by our continued involvement in the hospital, conniving at what is potentially most anti-therapeutic and perhaps criminally negligent? Earlier in the series, we talked about memory, about how trauma can affect what we recall, and how sometimes other people choosing not to believe us can cause us to second-guess ourselves. When you tell your story all these years and you finally get to see the proof like this, it's like you've been exonerated. Because everyone has called you a fucking liar all your life, and even now. 50 years later, a bit long. But that's what I mean by that's how I feel. Mm. I feel like a whole thing, you know, like there was a lot of times where I questioned myself, Aaron. You know, and, and that's what I mean... When you're slammed with that word, you're a liar. You're a liar, 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 all your life. The boy that cried wolf, this boy didn't cry wolf. Hey, but I was labelled as that boy. Hey, and that's what I mean by exonerated. You know, a whole weight's been lifted off me. Finally, I have proof that people can believe. You know what I mean? Because that's the closest I've ever come to the truth. Ever. In writing. There's been one other big development we need to tell you about. On December 16th, 2021, the Royal Commission of Inquiry released its report on redress for state abuse, which includes Lake Ellis. The full Lake Ellis report isn't due till early next year, but this one does contain some important information. We've said before that the Commission has limited powers. It can't lay criminal charges, it can't pay people compensation, but what it can do is given an authoritative, independent assessment of the facts. A Royal Commission is a public document that in and of itself holds that manner, I guess. Human rights lawyer Sonia Cooper 
has represented victims of state abuse for over 20 years. It's got the integrity, I think, of of independence, and I think that's that's probably one of the biggest things about it. She says the Royal Commission validates what survivors have been saying all along. It has now endorsed everything that those of us who've been survivor ad- advocates, and, and I include you in that, have been saying for a long time about what's wrong with the system. The Commission made a number of findings and recommendations. One of the main findings is that the Crown's response to abuse has been focused on what's good for the Crown and not for survivors. This is added to survivors' harm and trauma. I would have to say that this is probably the most blistering report that you know, our Commission's delivered in terms of abuse. It's an excellent report. I think it's come out really strongly in favour of survivors and their viewpoint. I can't see a single thing in that report that is, you know, disbelieving of anything that we've said. The report does talk about financial compensation and compares levels of compensation here to those overseas. No surprises, it hasn't been enough. There aren't specific figures in the report about what survivors might be able to expect in terms of further compensation but there are a number of recommendations for further support beyond financial, which, if enacted, could be hugely significant. One of these recommendations is that the government set up a holistic redress system, Puretumu Torofanui, offering a range of services aimed specifically at helping survivors. This process is not going to be just about compensation, it's going to be the whole package, so it's also going to look at you know, education and housing and mental and physical health, well-being and reconnection with whānau, language, all of those things. I mean, to a lot of survivors, that, that may be just as, if not more important than getting another lump sum. You know, that's a really, really big step forward in terms of how to deal with abuse. But Sonia's been around for a while and she knows this is not the end. It needs to be done in a timely way, and I just don't want it all to get bogged down in politics and the minutiae of the detail. I just don't want to be sitting here in five, ten years' time feeling that weariness of like, oh my God, we're still banging on this drum. For survivors who've been called liars, who've had their voices silenced, their accounts disbelieved, the report gives official recognition of what happened to them. It says they were telling the truth, they weren't listened to, what happened to them was wrong, and it was the Crown that was responsible. The New Zealand Crown has tried vigorously to protect their own reputation, their own financial situation, and by doing that, harmed and re-traumatised so many victims. Our Crown tried to cover up and hide torture and abuse to the extreme to protect New Zealand's reputation. Yeah. How we treat our tamariki and how we're viewed as treating our tamariki. And that is corruption, that is obstruction of justice, that is neglect, and it's unforgivable. I always made that quite clear to everyone, you know, never mind sell at least. It's just go for the government. Yeah. He, he's just a, he's just a, you know, uh, the stuffed turkey giving to the public for public opinion. 
the the opportunity has existed for a number of years for him to be held accountable and the missed opportunities that have gone by over those years have just I sort of pissed more in uh, Leeks's leaf than his cup and it sort of should have been 50-50. My hope is that all of the recommendations are put in place. Right up until very recently the Crown is playing the same game and it needs to be fixed and their behaviour needs to be stopped. A new entity absolutely has to be created and it's hope this government actually doesn't discard any of those recommendations. The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding. And the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crudson. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air.